Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jenna Neal Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. Welcome to episode 98. 98? I thought it was 99. It's oh, 98. It? No, it's 98. You're right. Oh, okay. I think I was, I was like, just yeah. hoping it was 99. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, we're really old getting up there. <laughs> Do you think that will become a time when we're like not no longer surprised by the number episode we're on? No. Each episode is going to be like, what? 98? That's we crazy. Did that. <laughs> look at us. Look at us. Look at you. Look at me. We're yeah. doing it. Just doing stuff. Keep up with your little podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, dude, so how was your week? Uh, my week was good. I I I think this we recorded so early last week that I I am now fully vaccinated. Yeah, me that's too. That's very excited. I know. And that, uh, yeah, I think that, that's like the big news. Um, yeah. What about you? Well, okay, so I'm vaccinated as well, and that's great. Yeah. Um, but I have to – okay, I had to – I wanted to call you yesterday so bad because the funniest fucking thing happened. But okay, I was like, no, we're recording tomorrow. I'm going to save it for the podcast. Okay. So let me just tell you, okay, listen, I get it. We're in the middle of a pandemic. The mail is not the most reliable right now. You know, I get it. It is what it is. They have a very hard job. So for the past like three weeks or so, all of my packages from the postal service have been going to my next door neighbor's house. Like, and so... (laughs) Uh, it is what it is. I feel bad because, like, he has to keep, like, bringing them over to me and, yeah. I, and then I feel bad or whatever. So yesterday morning, I get an alert on my phone that says, um, your package has been delivered. And then I'm like, no, it hasn't. And then I go and I look and I could see my package on his porch. And yeah. then I saw another package that I assumed was also mine because the other day I got a message saying that a package was delivered and it was not. And so I was like, um, and he's out of town on it. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to go over there and get it because like, I don't want to have to bother him with this or whatever. So I go in my pajamas and my slippers. I go Uh over there, I get the package. Uh, They are both mine. And then I leave and I go on with my day. And then in the middle of the day, I'm working, and then all of a sudden, I get a text message of a video from my good friend Kristen. Uh-huh. <laughs> the video is a surveillance video on a next door app with no. the title Have You Seen This Woman? Porch <laughs> <laughs> picking on a, at 7 a.m., it said, was the sub title (laughs) have you seen her she's there's a full-on video of me walking up to this guy's porch in my pajamas picking up these packages and the description says um hair dark pulled back top (laughs) like clothing top dark bottom dark they were matching pajamas (laughs) 
<laughs> shoes, sneakers, medium. They were not. They were very fluffy slippers. <laughs> and then it said, age 30s, question mark. Thank Ooh, you. Thank, thank you, you very you. much. Then it said, build, thin. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and then it said, has anybody seen her? And so Kristen <laughs> said it to me. idea how long I was wanted on the next door app yesterday Who's, before thank God it? Did your neighbor saw, my it? neighbor did he didn't recognize me I'm like it- dude you have brought me packages like three times in the last week and a half two weeks like <laughs> that didn't cross your mind and do I look a- that different without makeup on I guess did you see the video I did Oh my God, can't we oh my post it? God, thank God I don't have, like, this is like score one for having small chest is I like leaned over and thank God I wasn't wearing a browser and pajamas. Like what if like my boobs were on the Nest Cam or whatever, or the ring? And so, uh, but I, like, dude, I have, if Kristen hadn't seen that and sent it to me, I, I could be very much all over um Facebook groups or whatever the fuck like and I would have no idea yes because I that happened I mean you know in a next door Facebook neighborhood group I see that like every once in a while where somebody will post like this person was sneaking around our car the other night and this person whatever and it's they're never that uh that kind about the the appearance. So. Yeah, no. I'm like, listen, like he. So when I messaged him, I was like, it was me, it was me. Like we like texted him, and I messaged him on the side, and I wrote on the post like, it was me, your neighbor Jen. Um, and uh, he was like, oh my god, and he took it down, and he apologized. I was like, no, I'm just really glad that you think that I'm thin. <laughs> you are thin. <laughs> and um but I was like oh my god my bro I like sent it to everybody I was dying laughing my brother sent Bobby sent it back to me with like the curb your enthusiasm theme music dubbed over it like because oh it what totally is such a fucking Larry David moment okay will you send it to me right now it's the so story I- of my life yes do you want it uh yes. do you want the Bobby version I'm sure yeah okay hold on <laughs> oh and also said um um, sex feminine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, did you get it? Yes. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Okay. Um, so, okay. So this still is just <laughs> a hunched over Jen rifling through her neighbor's porch packages. Uh, okay. Porch picking. Seven a.m. 22 April. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, you do, like, you're, because you are all in the, in dark, like, it kind of does look like maybe. Menacing? Not really. You're very, like, calmly walking up and just, like. (laughs) Dude, to me, it was just a seven, more, just another morning. 7 a.m. Little did I know. Oh my god. Oh my god. Other see video very clear when paused. (laughs) It's like if it was very clear, you would recognize your fucking neighbor. (laughs) I know. (laughs) 
Oh my god. So that's amazing. I know. So just let's let's all just thank the Lord that I'm not in jail right now <laughs> for stealing my own goddamn packages. Oh, did you get something good? No, it was just like clothes for Sully. Yeah. Sully needed some new shorts. I bought some in Old Navy and some at Target. <laughs> that's it. Oh man. Nothing they worth were... stealing. It was drugs. Oh, okay. Well, I don't have anything anywhere near as good as that, and I never will. So should we do cookies? <laughs> Let's get into some cookies. Alrighty. Okay, so I'm going to do uh, start the cookies this week. My article came from People.com, written by Morgan Smith. Thanks, Morgan. Um, yeah, and this is a story about a bridesmaid who was hired for more than 125 weddings. Remember that movie, 27 Dresses or whatever? Yes. Well, fuck you, Katherine Heigl. This is 125. <laughs> she finally gets married herself. To her dream man. Wait, she was um, hired for? Okay, so here's – this is so cool, and I've never heard of this before. Her name okay. is Jen Glantz, and uh-huh. she is the founder of an of a company called Bridesmaids for Hire, which is – this company, what they do is they offer – they do like wedding planning courses, they do speech writing tips, and they have professional bridesmaids if you need them. And okay. then they have other ser- – and then they do other services. They do – all the stuff that you don't want to do in the wedding, basically. It's basically like wedding planning, but yeah. next level. And so she herself has been hired to be in 125 weddings. Wow. So isn't that crazy? Because she launched this company in 2014, which gave her very little time to focus on herself because she was always doing like she had so many weddings. Sometimes she would do back-to-back weddings in a day. She would do things like break up family arguments during weddings and take care of the bride. Like, you know, she put so much time into taking care of other people that she never really got to focus on her own love. Yeah. And I'm sure every weekend was taken up. Yeah. And so in 2016, she decided to do this thing where she would go on 14 dates in one month. And so She went on 14 dates, but then she decided to go on one more date on her 15th date, uh, according to the New York Times, as when she finally met a man named Adam Kossoff, who is, he's the vice president of marketing at a sports nutrition company um, uh, called Ghost Lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, And they met at um, Irving Farm, which is a small coffee shop near her. Um, Murray Hill apartment. She said that she told the New York Times that it was like a movie scene where everyone was blurred out except for this one person. Oh, so sweet. That's such like a perfect description. Yeah. And so they began dating. And then in 2017, they decided to sell all of their belongings and become what they call digital nomads, where they work remotely and then they live in different cities every single month. That's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I just love the way this girl's brain works. You know, she's she's obviously a passionate person who thinks outside the box and creates her own path. And I I and like just the confidence it takes to do those things, like to start your own business, to be like, no, I'm gonna quit my business and go do this. Like, you know, I, I most people don't 
ever, like maybe they dream of it, but they don't feel like that's a real option. And she is just a person who makes it happen. That's amazing. Yeah. Honestly, John Glantz, if you ever listen to this podcast, if you want to write a self-help book, I would probably buy it. <laughs> but anyway, so um, when they finally ended up going back to New York in 2019 after their digital nomad lifestyle, which is so fucking cool, he decided to that it, he wanted to marry her. Yeah. And so he proposed to her during a family trip to Boca Raton, Florida in July. And Jen, of course, said yes. And they were supposed to have on a 170-person wedding that was planned for this past October. But just like many other couples um, that were planning on getting married during COVID-19, they decided to postpone the reception until 2022. And then they had a smaller and safer wedding. On March 19th, Jen and Alex ended up eloping outside of the coffee shop where they first met. Oh, isn't that so cute? That is and cute. Um, his brother, who's a universal life minister. Hey, I'm a universal life minister too. <laughs> uh, he officiated the ceremony and some of their friends served as witnesses. So it's, I just think that it's so awesome that she finally got to, it's like after like her having a whole wedding business and yeah. you know doing 125 plus weddings and and all the hoopla that they just ended up just simply getting married in front of the little coffee shop on the street where they met and that sounds just with like, a couple of friends yeah like so much more meaningful and beautiful and um, yeah uh, well I love that cookie that's awesome I want to meet Thanks. this girl me too Okay, well, my I thought we might have the same quickie this week because this oh, one's really? so crazy. Yeah, so I found this in Yahoo.com and in Newsweek by Carl Sampson. Okay. Okay, so a woman in eastern China. I don't. We don't have any names to go with these people, so you're just gonna have to follow along. <laughs> a woman in eastern China on March 31st was overjoyed when she found her long lost daughter. So apparently this woman's daughter had gone missing 20 years earlier. And although she had like searched and searched, she was never able to find her. And it's not clear exactly how this happened. Her daughter was young, like a baby or toddler at the time. And she didn't like give her up for adoption. The girl was like lost or stolen. It's not sure. But then this year she was at her son's wedding when she noticed a unique birthmark on his bride-to-be's hand and realize that this was quite possibly could be the same birthmark of her missing daughter. What? Yeah. So does that make sense? So like her daughter was about to marry her son? Yes. Oh my God. The woman pulled. How do you object? (laughs) So she pulled aside like the bride's parents and was like, was your daughter adopted? And they were like shocked because I mean, they knew this, but nobody knew that fact. And so she told them about the birthmark and about her own child who had been lost. And they confirmed, yes, they had found the bride as a child 20 years ago on the roadside. And that then when they were unable to locate her parents, they ended up raising her as their own. So the bride, upon hearing the truth, burst into tears. She embraced her biological mother. But now, of course, the bride and her adoptive parents were worried was their daughter marrying her brother? But no, because in another twist, the woman what? revealed that after not being able to find her daughter, she had eventually adopted her son to a fact that oh neither- Oh my God! Yes, 
neither he or anyone else was aware of. So since they weren't actually related, they went ahead and got married. And then party guests got to continue to celebrate the wedding, as well as this mother and daughter meeting again. Holy Uh, shit! Everyone finding out they were adopted. And according to Time Now News, the bride said meeting her birth mom was happier than the wedding day itself, which I don't know if that bodes well, but she just, she was very happy. It was a very happy day for everybody. That's the most amazing story ever. Isn't that crazy? I was like, is this true? But it was like, it's a Newsweek and a lot of, it's a ton of stories about it. So. Wow. Yes. Isn't that crazy? That is just proof to, in my eyes that like, there's something greater than all of us out there making these things happen. Like that is just too wild of a coincidence. I I mean, and not only that was her daughter, but that this, that her son had been adopted and you know what I mean? Right. Whoa. She makes it not creepy, but really beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. That could have been a very different story. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Dude, great quickie. Thanks. Great quickie. Great quickie. We're off to a great start this week. We really are. This is a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Don't fuck it up. Don't. Don't fuck it. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. Are you ready for... A crazy story. I am ready. Okay. So this one came from an article for cron.com by Gabrielle Banks, an article for Texas Monthly by Skip Hollinsworth. Ooh, Texas Uh, Monthly is always good. Oh, it is. An episode of Snapped. And then coincidentally, Skip Hollinsworth is in this episode of Snapped. Okay. Because oh, he's like, like seeing providing information. <laughs> yeah, it is. He's very animated. And then um, a podcast called American Malice. All right. All right. So, okay. In 1982, Jeffrey Stern was a law, stu- a law student at the South Texas College of Law when he was set up on a blind date with a young lady named Yvonne Flores, um, like spelled Y. V O N E, you know, oh, okay, uh, or yeah. well, and but Yvonne? some people say on the show say Yvonne, and some uh-huh. people say Yvonne. Yvonne, right? Yvonne, right? Yeah, yeah. Yvonne. Okay, so Yvonne. <laughs> She was a paralegal for a patent law firm. So I'm sure like whoever set them up were probably like, you're in law and you're in law. You should date. So even though they were both in law, they really didn't have that much in common. Jeffrey had kind of grown up in a strict Jewish Jewish household in Milwaukee. And Yvonne was raised Catholic and grew up in Houston. Really, I guess, according to everything that I've read, they're like so different, but really just their, you know, religious backgrounds were different. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like most people. <laughs> yeah. She um, had also been married. She had married her childhood sweetheart with whom she had one child. So, um, so she was a single mother at the time. But so really their religious backgrounds were different. But when they met, it was just like, love at first sight. They hit it off immediately and were inseparable. Friends talked about how compatible they were, that they would, you know, finish each other's sentences and that apparently she'd love to drink Dr. Pepper a lot and he would just like bring one to her before she even asked for it, which that's a good server. 
So she even decided to convert to Judaism for him, not only for him, but to please his parents who, of course, wanted him to marry a nice Jewish girl. Mm -hmm. So she um, converted. And then in 1991, he ended up proposing to her over dinner at the Rainbow Room in New York City, which is very fancy. It is very fancy. And then they- I remember one time, sorry, this is, I think I told you this story about like my disastrous 40th birthday where we were supposed to go to a Broadway show and then Eva kind of got tickets for the wrong night. And so on my birthday, we were going to go to the Rainbow Room and have drinks. And then (laughs) we went, we met there and it was just, I mean, no way he could have known, but it was closed for like a private event. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) (sighs) And so we like, we're like, oh, so we just like went to like a pub. (laughs) That sucks. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it was fine. It's just like one of those things where it was just stacked on stack and like Ben couldn't do anything right. Poor guy. He Mm -hmm. felt so bad because I was being a real biatch. I mean, you're usually a biatch. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's not. (laughs) I would be upset too. It sucks when you have high expectations and things just like, especially for such a milestone birthday and things just don't work out. Right. I mean, Um, like, you can't relate. The pandemic, (laughs) Sally, oh, really? You got to go to places for your birthday (laughs) outside your home and celebrate. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I had a great birthday. Anyways, he proposed to her at the Rainbow Room in 1991. And then four months later, they married in his hometown of Milwaukee, um, which also sounds very romantic. So romantic. And so um, (laughs) at that point, he had already started his own law practice and it was doing really well. He specialized in automobile accidents. You know, he was that guy that you would see in TV commercials, you know, like that kind of guy. Oh, like, uh-huh. um, yeah, you know, like an ambulance and so, chaser? yeah, so okay. we'll, like <laughs> touch on that in a second, too. Okay, yeah, so he was an ambulance chaser, so yeah, but he, his commercial, he had like commercials and he would take out like full page ads and phone books and stuff, and he would get celebrity athletes to be in his commercials, like Evander Holyfield was in one of them. The tagline for was always, uh, want a good lawyer, go with the champions. But so even though he was very successful in doing all of these smaller automobile accidents and stuff, he was kind of under scrutiny for being an ambulance chaser. Mm-hmm. It said that he would pay people for clients and pay towing companies, like yeah. kick them back money for calling them first when there was an accident and stuff like that, which is illegal. Yeah, right. And so, um, <laughs> but Yvonne and Jeff ended up buying a very fancy mansion in the pine Point Village in Houston, which was very rich and fancy. They led the glamorous life they don't need. They ended up having two children, one in 1995 and one in 1997. So now they have three children together. Well, two children together, and he adopted her firstborn. It said that he took the her firstborn son in like and treated him just like he did his other children and loved yeah. him very much. And so a few years later when the children were older they decided to move to Bel Air which was closer to their synagogue and their kids private Jewish school. It was more of I guess more of a family town I guess, but also still very fancy. Their friends and family say that he 
worshipped her, give her the all these gifts, and they had date nights at least once a week. And you know, he would never say anything negative about her, and treated her like a queen, is what friends and family said. And and them as a family, both Jeff and Yvonne, known to be very giving and to their community and very charitable. They gave to various charities, and including charities that helped victims of child abuse and domestic battery. They once gave a Houston orphanage more than 100 bicycles. And wow. they, yeah, they coordinated a bone marrow drive for a friend that was suffering from leukemia. They prided themselves on being very in, involved in the charity world. I mean, I, I know this sounds weird to say, but I I, I watch Real Housewives <laughs> and I think you all know that. And but um on the Housewives of Dallas, maybe it's a Texas thing. I don't I'm sure it's an everywhere thing. It's a rich people thing probably. But yes. there's definitely like a scene for yes. charities and women that throw charities. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, for like sure. Like a social and so she was very much that woman, like very she was like Emily put together Gilmore. fancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could always see her at these fancy fundraising events and photographed wearing like beautiful gowns and all of that to say is that, you know, they were just kind of the perfect couple. Nobody ever saw them have any issues or problems, and they seemed like the most loving couple that were kind and charitable. And then what happened, John? And then, <laughs> and then, um, at seven o'clock in the morning on February 11th, 2010, Jeff was actually out of town and Yvonne was at home with their then 14 year old daughter and 12 year old son. They were all sleeping when all of a sudden they heard a loud bang. Her daughter heard the noise first and just thought that it was like a painting that fell. And Yvonne was wearing earplugs and didn't hear anything. A neighbor actually heard what they thought were gunshots. So they called the police. So Yvonne and her children were completely shocked when police officers showed up at their house. What's crazy is that when they investigated, they found two bullet holes that had been shot through their living room window and into their home. So thank God nobody was hurt, but they were obviously shocked and had no idea who would do this. They assumed that maybe it was just some teenagers and a neighborhood prank or something. And so, you know, like murder. (laughs) And so um, when uh, Mr. Stern came back home, the police asked him if he had any idea who would want to harm him or his family, you know, because he is a lawyer, maybe has some disgruntled clients or something. But he was like, no, I have no clue. I have no clue who would do this. And then two months later, at 1030 at night, Yvonne was at home and she heard the doorbell ring. And when she got up and walked towards the door, through the window, she saw a strange man standing there. And through the window, he looked at her, smiled, and then fired a shot at her. Yeah. So luckily, Yvonne was able to push herself against a wall and she missed the bullet. And her son was standing there too. And so by inches, the bullet missed both her and her son. And the man ran into his van and then sped away. And so then the police, again, they were like, hey, Jeff, you have any idea who might want to do this? And Jeff was like, I have no clue. But Jeff was very concerned, He, um, you know, for his family's safety. They installed bulletproof windows in, in the entire house. They put up gates around the front door. They set up surveillance cameras. He even bought a German shepherd to patrol the house. 
That'll stop a bullet. But he even like hired a Navy SEAL to come teach the family how to respond if like something like that happened again, or if they were approached by a gunman. So he really tried to do what he could to protect the family. But because it was obvious that Yvonne is now the target, you know what I mean? Like he was shooting at Yvonne, they decided that it would be safer if she moved into an apartment a few miles away. Don't worry, it was a luxury apartment, but she moved into an apartment <laughs> for the time being. Okay. But even though she moved into another home, she still didn't stop living her life. You know, she was still going to go do what she needed to do, go see friends, go run her charity. So on the morning of May 5th, when Yvonne was leaving her apartment, she took the elevator downstairs into the parking garage. And when she went into the parking garage, was in her car, a man approached her and he was wearing aviator glasses and a black jacket and a black turtleneck. And Very um, conspicuous. Yes. And so he then aimed a gun at her and shouted, give me your fucking money or I'll kill you. And she like in a panic, just held her purse up and then dumped it upside down and like, here, take whatever, you know? And when he did that, he ended up shooting her in the abdomen. <gasps> And the bullet ended up hitting, like just clipping her liver and her colon, but then it lodged itself in her right hip. And she was able to drive herself to a nearby gas station. And then she like got and she like stumbled inside the gas station and fell onto the floor. Uh, But she was able to somehow text her husband to let him know that she had been shot. So he raced over there just as she was being loaded into an ambulance once again they were like for the third time jeff you have any idea any idea at all and jeff was like i have no idea who keeps trying to kill my wife and so then and so they had no leads no leads at all on may 27th detectives end up getting a phone call from a man who was in a deportation center. He was about to be deported. And he said that he was watching TV and he saw a photo of her on the news. And he was like, oh, I know all about this case. So he called and said, like, listen, I'd be happy to tell you everything you need to know if I can stay in the United States. And so when he ended up telling detectives that A childhood friend named Richard Gutierrez had approached him weeks earlier and asked him if he would murder Yvonne Sturt. He turned them down, but he was saying, like, this is the person who asked me if if I would murder him. So, of course, the police go and find Richard Gutierrez, who he was a driver who worked for a Houston record service. And when they asked him about this, he pretty much just told them everything. He told them that he was approached by a woman named Michelle Geyser. Michelle Geyser worked as office manager of a small law firm in Houston. Which law firm? Uh, One that was owned by Jeffrey Stern. Uh, And so, dun-dun-dun. But Richard Gutierrez said that um, she had... um, been asking him to recruit men to kill Yvonne Stern. She never told them like who this woman was or how she knew her, but he, she was just very clear that someone's paying me to pay you to kill this woman. Right. So she told them that she would give him $20,000 for uh, if he successfully had her killed. Police then got an arrest warrant and then went 
to Michelle's office. Michelle Geyser, just to tell you who she was, is um, so she was born in the Philippines in 1972. But when she was 12, she ended up mu- moving to Houston with her family. And then she was really smart and uh, with a really great work ethic from a really young age. She ended up, when she was in high school, she worked as an accountant for an oil company. And then right after high school, she was hired by a, law, a personal injury law firm to be a receptionist. And And then she ended up going to working for other personal injury law firms as an office manager. People described her as being like really well-spoken, professional. She was a really hard worker and would put in long hours at the office. And when her father died in 2005, that's when she worked even harder because she became the financial support for her entire family. So she, you know, she had to pay for her family's home. She had to pay for her brother and sister's college. You know, she was just a really hard worker. So the police went to Michelle's office to, with an arrest warrant to arrest her. And when they saw her, right when they were about to arrest her, they realized that the man standing behind her in her office uh-huh. was Jeff Stern. Yeah. Obviously. The Obviously. two are in cahoots. Uh-huh. So, um, <laughs> so Michelle, um, even though she had never been married, she had dated a pretty good amount. She was smart and she was beautiful and she was outgoing. And, um, you know, people, they said that she was like a kind of flirty. She first met Jeff. They met in the late nineties at some point when he came to her law firm. So what he would do though, so I don't know that he owned this law firm, but what he would do is he would go to smaller law firms and he would take cases that he couldn't take on and bring them to them. But then it's like, but then you kick me a fee. And then with, and then with bigger cases that he couldn't take on, he would go to bigger law firms and bring them cases and say, you take this, but you kick me a fee. Does that make sense? Yes. So, okay. So that's what he was doing. And so when he went to visit her law firm, that's when he first met her. He was very interested in her. So he would start pursuing her by buying her things like Houston Rockets tickets and just cute little gifts here and there. And then in 2004, when she had just broken up with a boyfriend who also worked as an office manager at that law firm, then she was like, maybe I will go out for lunch or whatever with this guy, you know, even though he was older than her or whatever. I think she just was just out of a relationship and wanted some attention. So, so they would go to lunch and out for drinks. And then like the gifts just kept coming. He would buy her like diamond earrings. He would pay, he paid off her credit cards. He bought her a new car. Man, um, anybody so, paid off my credit cards or my student loans? <laughs> yeah. And then, but after, so this went on for years before they actually hooked up. Really? And so he went to Las Vegas. This He was in Las Vegas with his son at the same time she was in Las Vegas. So he messaged her and was like, hey, I'm here too. And then um, he ended up coming over to her ho- hotel room one night. And then that's when they ended up having sex for the first time. And on that same trip, apparently, she saw a Maserati at a car dealership. Uh-huh. That And she was like, oh, that's a nice Maserati. And then on the spot, Jeff bought it for himself. And he shipped it back to Houston. So it that's kind of funny too, but because right. he didn't buy it for her. He's like, you like that? It's not. Oh, you like that? <laughs> <laughs> but according 
to Michelle. He had told her that he had never felt this way about anyone before in his life. And he said that he had never been this happy until she had come along. And so, of course, when Michelle was arrested, she immediately filled the police in on their affair. And it was pretty obvious to the police, too, at that moment when they saw Jeff that they were having an affair. She had told him that they were having an affair and that Jeff basically instructed her to pay to have someone to kill his wife. And so Yvonne, when she found out about the affair, she ended up immediately filing for divorce And she took the children and she ended up going to live in their fancy vacation home in Aspen, Colorado. Wait, this is after she's been shot at three times, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so So she didn't know about the affair before. No, she had no idea. So so this all came to light during Michelle's arrest because she ended up giving a videotaped confession claiming that her and Jeff were lovers and that he uh, he gave her the money to pay somebody to kill his wife. So when Yvonne found out, she was like, fuck you, I'm leaving, filed for divorce, took the kids, went to Colorado, and everyone just thought that she was going to then, that 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 was that. She was going to start her new life and Jeff could rot in jail and so could Michelle. But everyone was shocked when at the end of that summer, Yvonne ended up coming back to Houston and she dropped her divorce petition. She stopped the divorce. And then she just declared that she was going to stand by her man. She said that she was very upset by the affair, but that she forgave him. She said on tape that this was nothing more than a fatal attraction and that it was that he never would have tried to kill her, that this was all Michelle and Jeff was just a victim. But here's the thing. Even if that's true, even if that's true, while he did do stuff like go put, get a German shepherd and put up all the iron gates and bulletproof windows. He never offered up that information that could potentially save his wife's life. Right. You know what yes, I mean? Yes, At that exactly. point, you know somebody's trying to kill your wife. So why don't you try to put a stop to it by telling the police that about the affair or go to Michelle and be like, cut this shit out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm a little, I'm not... Totally sure. So when Gip Hollinsworth, when he wrote this article for Texas Monthly, he ended up interviewing Yvonne. She said, oh, I'm sure I know what everyone is saying, that I didn't divorce Jeffrey because there was a prenup, that he secretly paid a small fortune to pretend that he's innocent. And then Skip said to her, and don't forget the rumor that he's brainwashed you. (laughs) And then she just (laughs) like laughed and said, I'm sorry, but I'm not in a trance. I've not been bribed. And there was certainly no prenup. Believe me, if we had divorced, I'd be far richer than I am now. So she ended up sticking by him through the entire thing. When Michelle had been arrested, there was obviously a lot of evidence against her because Richard Gutierrez had claimed that she paid him. So there was a witness there. And then also, it wasn't just him that she had paid to kill her. Nguyen, he was the man that went to her house. So it was a totally different different man. So she used different people for each one. And then a man named Adam Gutierrez, who was the person that she had paid the first time. And she was angry that none of these, apparently they all said that she was angry that none of these had actually worked. 
that they were unsuccessful hits. So Michelle, you know, had a lot of evidence against her, but in exchange for her testimony, she was able to get a plea bargain if she testified against Jeffrey in his involvement. Yeah. So then that she would get it lessened to 25 years in jail. When they went to court, with an Yvonne by Jeffrey's side, Michelle claimed that he, you know, that they were lovers and that they used to play this kind of, not a game exactly, but like when they would talk at night, they would fantasize together and he would be like, tell me what you would do if you ever saw Yvonne and then what would you do? And then what? And that it would get darker and darker and darker until she would say like, kill her or I would stab her and I would do all these things. And and then, and then it was very strongly suggested that like, what if I gave you this money? You know what I mean? To hire people, whatever. So the prosecution was definitely painting the picture that Jeff was very much involved in this and that he had paid to have his wife killed. But during the trial, it came out that when Michelle was in jail, she had actually written a handwritten note, like a handwritten letter, actually, to a cellmate mm-hmm. ordering the murder of Jeff Stern. What? Like she was trying to pay a hitman to kill Jeff while she was in jail. So when that came out during trial, that was like the bombshell that went off. The defense was like, look, if she can lie about all of these things, and she can order a hit in jail. Right. And this is, you know, the man that she would supposedly kill for. Who's to yeah. say that she's not lying about everything else? So, yeah, especially if she's the star witness against him and there's not any other evidence tying him to the hits. Like right. Like, it's all just her that's like, you can't convict him. That's crazy. So with that, his charges were dropped and he was set free and Michelle was sentenced to 20 years in jail for her role. And so she is eligible for parole in 2020, but her uh, projected release date is June 10th of 2030. So she'll be out pretty soon and she'll be pretty young because she's only 48 years old right now. Yeah. And just to update you on Jeff and Yvonne Stern, he's actually in jail right now. For what? Because he is being held and his trial be- keeps getting pushed back because of COVID. Uh-huh. But um, but he's being held and he's charged with conspiring to defraud the government, willfully filing multiple tax false tax returns Uh and aiding in the preparation of those returns. And prosecutors say he then attempted to cover his tracks by tampering with witnesses and obstructing justice. So sounds like he got his sounds like he got his. Yeah. (laughs) So when you, when something like that happens, prosecutors aren't really going to turn a blind eye to the rest of your shadiness. Like, well, we can't prove this, but we'll get you for something. Right, 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 right. Maybe he didn't order the death of his wife, but I feel like that doesn't feel like he's completely clean of that, just the way that he refused to bring up or admit to the affair when he knew that his wife was in danger. And he obviously isn't a stranger to dirty, dirty practices. Yes. I mean, it sounds like to me, he's like at the very least like an accessory after the fact, because after the first time, yeah, he had to have known. If he if he didn't know before, if he hadn't ordered himself, like then he what? But he wasn't telling police he was 
Are they still together? Yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. He's still bringing her diet or diet, just regular Dr. Peppers <laughs> from Jeff. You don't know what she'd like. Maybe she likes that full sugar. Maybe she do. It's like 98 flavors or ever. Many are in a can of Dr. Pepper. All right. That was a good one. That was... Thanks, man. Yeah. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Would you like a love story? Yes. This please. one is very sweet and really crazy. Okay. I got my information from the New York Post by Hannah Fishberg, from BBC.com by Lucy Wallace, from the New York Times by Pete Mercurio, and from the website PeterMercurio.com. Okay. So around 8 p.m. on August 28th, 2000, Danny Stewart was running late for his dinner with his partner of three years, Pete Mercurio. Normally this would be, this fact would be, you know, cause for annoyance. But on that night, Danny running late would be life changing. So Danny and Pete met in 1997 through a mutual friend on Pete's softball team. And Pete said that when they started dating, the first time he went to Danny's apartment, he did what like everyone at the time did. He walked over and like started looking through his CD collection And he would like to be like, oh, what kind of music are you into? Like, can we be cool together? And he said he saw the cover for a band that at the time he thought he was the only person who knew about. It was Fountains of Wayne. Are you into them? Uh Uh-huh. No, I wasn't, but I know who they are. Yeah. Me neither. I uh, could not name a song, but I have heard of them. You know, it was one of those things where it was like, it was an underground band at the time. And so he just like found a connection with Danny when he was there. And he was like, he might just be a keeper. So the two obviously found more in common than just the music. And on that day in August 2000, Danny had actually recently moved in with Pete and his roommate into their small Chelsea apartment in Manhattan. And that night, Danny was running late because he had been back to his own apartment in Harlem that he was now subletting to pick up his mail and stuff. And so as Danny stepped off the subway at 8th Street, at the 8th Street ACE stop, something caught his eye. As he was about to go in through the turnstiles and up the stairs, he looked in the corner and it looked like a baby doll was up against the wall of the station. Mm -hmm. And so he kept going, you know, people lose stuff in the subway station all the time. But for some reason, he took one look back at the object and noticed that the baby doll's legs were moving. (gasps) So Danny's breath caught just like yours. He ran back back down the stairs and realized this was not a doll. It was a baby boy. (gasps) Oh my God. Yeah. He was completely naked, except he was wrapped in this black sweatshirt. Danny said his umbilical cord was still partially intact. So I could tell he was a newborn. I was thinking maybe a day or so old. (gasps) So the baby was completely quiet, but awake and alert. His eyes were like wide and open. Danny reached down and stroked the baby's head and the baby made a little bit of noise. And Danny was a social worker and he's like normally calm in all situations. But this, of course, it had him rattled. So he yelled. He starts yelling to people who are passing by like someone call the police, someone call the police because this is before cell phones were really popular, you know, so he didn't have one. Nobody paid any attention. One woman came over, but she didn't speak any English. And Danny says, so she really didn't understand what I was say, saying, even when I was pointing to the baby. I think she probably thought I may have been a little deranged. So Danny was stuck. He was like, I don't want to pick up the baby in case it's hurt, but I, I, I can't get anyone to call the police. 
So he darted up the stairs at the subway station and found a payphone right at the top of the stairs and called 911. And so as quick as he could, he was like, I found a baby. Here's where I'm at. And then he hung up and ran back down to the baby. And so as he waited for the police, he started worrying, what if the operator didn't believe me because he was so quick to hang up? He was like, what if they thought it was a prank call and nobody is actually coming? And he says, like, in retrospect, he probably only waited a few minutes, but his heart was racing so quickly that time kind of stood still. So he was like, I need... I need police to take this call seriously. So I'm going to need someone else to call them too. So once again, he rushed back upstairs to the payphone and this time he called Pete. So Pete had been waiting, like looking out his apartment window for Danny was rightfully getting annoyed. But when Danny blurted out, I found a baby. I don't think the police believe me. So please call them right now. Oh my God. What a text. Can you imagine? No, it's like a phone call. Oh, it's a phone call. You can just call him from a payphone because it's 2000. So Pete says the hair on the back of his neck stood up because he said, I know Danny. Danny wouldn't say something if it wasn't true. Right. So Pete immediately runs from the apartment to the subway station. And he got there just as the police were carrying the baby away to be taken for a checkup at the hospital. It turned out the operator had believed Danny. Um, Danny gave his statement to the police. And then Danny and Pete were kind of left alone on the sidewalk, like in shock over what had just happened. And Pete turns to Danny and said, you know, you're going to be connected to that baby in some way for the rest of your life. And Danny was like, what do you mean? And Pete was like, well, eventually this kid is going to want to learn of the night he was found and he may want to find the person who discovered him. So maybe there's a way we can find out where he ends up and send him a birthday gift every year. And so this story, as you can imagine, was huge at the time. Like Danny was hailed as a local hero in the press. And Peter actually wrote, Danny told the story over and over again, first to every local TV news station, then to family members, friends, coworkers, and acquaintances. The story spread like an urban myth. You're never going to believe what my friend's cousin's coworker found in the subway. And Danny did feel a connection to this baby. So he went to the hospital where he knew the baby had been taken But of course, nobody would tell him anything. So as the story faded, Danny and Pete went back to normal life, just kind of like Danny, you know, I was like, what are you gonna do? This crazy thing happened, but it's kind of out of our hands. So, you know, Danny was a social worker and Pete was uh, an aspiring playwright and worked part time as a word processor at the time. Mm-hmm. But then three months after finding the baby, Danny was asked by the Administration for Children's Services to come to a hearing in family court and testify about how he had found the baby. So this was in early December of 2000, just um, yeah, three months after he found, found the little baby. Mm-hmm. So Danny gave testimony and then the judge asked him if he would stay for the whole hearing. The police testified and that was when Danny learned that the mother had never been found. And then at the end of the hearing, the judge turned back to address Danny again. And she said, Mr. Stewart, I want to let you know what's happening here and instances where we have a baby that has been abandoned. We want to place them in pre-adoptive foster care as quickly as possible. And so Danny, as a social worker, was like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I hope that happens for this baby. And -hmm. then the judge stops and looks at him and goes, would you be interested in adopting this baby? Wow. And Peter wrote in in the New York Times, he said, the question simply stunned everyone in the courtroom, everyone except for Danny, who answered simply, yes. (gasps) 
And he was like, but I know it's not that easy. And the judge was like, well, it can be. And then the judge just went into judge mode and started issuing orders to get background checks and parent training and home evaluations and visits that would wow. like clear the way of this usually like it would be six to eight months before yeah. you could even like begin to become a, a foster parent or consider adopting a baby. And Danny actually said, I had not had thoughts of adopting. But at the same time, I could not stop thinking that I did feel connected. I felt like this was not even an opportunity. It was a gift. And how can you say no to this gift? So Danny called Pete to tell him what had just happened. And Pete was pissed. He was like, my gut reaction was just to say, no, no, no. You're, tell, you're not interested. Go back into the courtroom and tell her that you made a mistake. And Pete wrote, my first reaction when I heard was something like, are you insane? How could you say yes without consulting me? In the three years as a couple, we had never discussed adopting a a child. Why would we? Our lives were not geared for child rearing. I was an aspiring playwright. Danny was a respected yet wildly underpaid social worker. We had a roommate sleeping behind a partition in our living room to help pay the rent. Like he said, even if our financial and logistical circumstances had been different, we knew how many challenges gay couples usually faced when they want to adopt. And while Danny has the patience and selflessness galore, I didn't. I didn't know how to change a diaper, let alone nurture a child. So over the next weeks, they had a lot of arguments about this situation. And Danny finally said to Pete, he said, I'm going to go ahead with this, whether you're on board or not. And Pete was like, you're choosing a baby over our relationship. And Danny was like, I want us all to be a family. I'd like us to do this together. But if you're not ready, I understand, and I'm going to do it with or without you. And Pete says that at the time, he said something really snarky, like, good luck being a single parent in New York. (laughs) But but Pete knew that there was also a part of him that also wanted this to happen. And so he kind of got worn down, and Pete agreed to go go with Danny to visit the baby at the foster home. And when they got there, they immediately noticed this wasn't, like, the best place the baby had a sore and infected diaper rash that went from like his belly button down to his thighs, like all the way around. And the caseworker who was there handed the baby to Danny and Danny said, remember me? And then it was Pete's turn to hold the baby who was still very quiet, but just as alert as he was when Danny found him. And Pete wrote, in order to protect myself from future heartache, I had convinced myself that I could not, would not become attached I didn't trust the system and was sure there would be obstacles with the baby's eyes staring up up at me and all the innocence and hope he represented. I, like Danny, was completely hooked. And he said that the baby squeezed his finger when he held him. And he said it was almost like he had found a pressure point in my finger that opened up my heart to my head and showed me in that moment that I could be one of his parents, one of his dad's. So over the next two weeks, things started to happen really quickly. They, the couple underwent supervised home visits and background checks, and they were told that it would be months before the baby would be officially placed in their home. But on December 20th, there was a court hearing before that same judge so that the two basically could officially state their intention of adopting the baby and get the, the ball rolling with all the paperwork. But at that hearing, the judge said, how would you like to have your baby with you for the holiday? And the couple says they both nodded, but Pete was like, internally, we were thinking, what holiday? I hope she's not meeting Christmas because that's in a couple days. That was what she meant. And so she started like issuing orders for caseworkers and attorneys to have the baby ready to pick up from the foster care agency in two days. So just imagine like this all started 
the first of December. And by December 20th, they're about to have a baby home. That's wild. It is wild. So together with Pete's family, Danny and Pete frantically got the apartment ready for the baby, who Pete and Danny had decided to name Kevin. On December 22nd at 9 o'clock in the morning, Danny and Pete collected Kevin from the foster care agency. They snuggled him up in his blanket and took the subway back to their apartment. And it had started to snow, says Danny, and it made it feel all that more magical. So the judge's plan had been for Kevin to visit the Christmas over the Christmas holidays and then return to his foster home. But Pete and Danny, once they had Kevin there, they were like, can he stay? And so... On December 27th, the caseworker called with good news. Kevin could remain while they completed their home study and certified their home. And so over the next year, the three settled into a life together. And Danny and Pete were officially foster parents while their caseworker checked up on them and checked up on the baby's welfare. And during that time, Pete says, we often wondered about the judge. Did she know Danny was a social worker and therefore thought he would make a good parent? Would she have asked him to adopt if she knew Danny was gay and in a relationship? And so at the final adoption hearing, which took place in December of 2002, when she had signed the official adoption order, Pete raised his hand and said, Your Honor, we've been wondering why you asked Danny if he was interested in adopting. And she simply said, I had a hunch. Was I wrong? Yeah. So Pete and Danny raised Kevin as their own, but they were always very honest with him about his story. Pete made a picture book with the story of Danny's discovery when he was like two or three and he decorated it with clip art and he and Danny would read it to him every night before bedtime, but it was Kevin's favorite book. And they would often catch him like flipping through the pages by himself and like mouthing the words that he memorized as like a three-year-old. Oh, so cute. So Kevin didn't realize actually for almost a year when he was really, he was very young, but this was his story. But when he did, He was so proud and excited that he took the book to school for a show and tell. Just as he was when he was a newborn, Kevin, like, he was a quiet kid, but he was incredibly curious. He was smart. And when Kevin was 10, so this was 2011, New York State made gay marriage legal. And Danny and Pete, who had been together now for 14 years, talked to Kevin about how he felt about them getting married. And Kevin, of course, wanted, you know, of course you want your parents to get married. And so he said it was... It was Kevin that suggested asking the judge who had presided over their adoption to marry the couple. So Pete wrote a letter to the family court in Manhattan. And within hours, a court attorney called to say that, yes, of course, the judge remembered them and was thrilled at the idea of officiating their marriage. So in the same courtroom where Kevin had officially become their son, Danny and Pete were married. The judge was thrilled at how everything had turned out and in Kevin And he was thrilled to meet this hero from his favorite childhood book because she had been a a character in this book they had made for her. Wow. And so the judge ended up keeping up with Kevin and even attended his high school graduation. And they exchange holiday cards every December. Kevin is now 20 years old and at (gasps) college studying mathematics and computer science. He's six feet tall, like taller than both of his dads. He plays ultimate Frisbee. He's run numerous marathons. He even danced with the National Dance Institute from the age of nine to 14. Wow. Yeah. Pete says when Kevin wants to learn something, he just goes out and does it. I mean, he's taught himself piano, guitar. Pete says Kevin was always a very respectful kid. He's empathetic and kind. He keeps his emotions close to his vest. He's an observer, doesn't crave or seek attention. He's a private person, but also a quiet leader. He can also be very funny. 
So this year, Pete wrote and published a book about their story called Our Subway Baby. It's a children's book. And it's really beautifully illustrated. It's really sweet. And when they were dropping Kevin off at college this year, his dad's gifted the book to him. And just about a week later, he texted them and said, I'm so proud of this book. And while Kevin doesn't go around telling people his story, he now, is keep, he now keeps the book on the corner of his desk in his dorm where he is an RA. And so he's like, that's his way of like telling people his story. I know. And Danny, who's now 55, says, I can't imagine my life if it didn't turn out this way. My life has become much more enriched and full. It has changed my worldview, my perspective, my whole lens. And Pete says, I did not know this level of deep love existed in this world until my son came into my life. And I know. (laughs) Like, I know it is like that. Um, (laughs) So Pete and Danny wrote Kevin this beautiful letter before he left for college that's like full of like really funny life advice and just their love for him. And I'm just going to read a little portion of it. Um, if you want to read the whole thing, it's, it's very sweet. It's on um, petermercurio.com. Mm. So in it, they say, we hope you will look back on your childhood and smile. We did our best to give you an adventurous and carefree youth, one filled with waterfall, oceans, glaciers, and geysers. Together, we've explored mountains, valleys, caves, garden, groves, and deserts, playgrounds, pools, puzzles, and picnics. Outdoor and indoor will always remind us of you. This life, this world, is a breathtakingly vibrant and beautiful mystery. Take in all of its wonder. Let every moment awe you. These past 18 winters, springs, summers, and autumn have been the best seasons of our life because we got to experience them through your eyes. How lucky are we? Thank you so much for sharing the view. Now your focus shifts to new adventures as it should, but we will miss the scenery. Our unexpected and unplanned ride together has been, and still is, incredibly enchanting, simply magical, the best trip we've ever taken. A new phase begins, but the journey continues. Just remember, no matter where you are or who you become, we love you unconditionally. You are and always will be our ultimate. I love it. Isn't that sweet? Oh my God, it's so good. How did you find all of these? I don't even know. A lot of searching. (laughs) Like just Googling different things. But I think this has been in the news a lot lately because they wrote this book. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, and so we will obviously post lots of pictures of this beautiful family. um, And you can find the book is called Our Subway Baby. And if you want to oh, find it. I do. And I will. Yeah. And I will. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so awesome. I love it. Yeah. It's really great. Should we do um, something we dumb? Something we dumb and something we love? <laughs> something dumb and something we love? Yes, we should. All right. Gosh. Um, I guess for something dumb... Well, for something I love, Sally and I have been listening to, it's called uh, You're Wrong About, which we really love. Yes. It's really great. And then Sally had sent me another podcast that's co-hosted by one of the co-hosts of uh, You're Wrong About, and it's called- Maintenance Phase. (laughs) Maintenance Phase. And it's about, you know, debunking um, diets. Yes. And, And the dumb thing is, is that like, dude, I have done- and you have too. Yes. And every woman I know, we have done every single one of these motherfucking diets. Yeah. And I'm just so and and I've been reading the beauty myth, 
Mm-hmm. We're listening to, let's be honest. Right. I listen to it all. Um, reading with which, your ears. I'm reading with my ears. And it's just really eye-opening. So the something dumb is like, it's so fucking dumb how we have been conditioned to, um, you know, basically stay hungry for this imaginable unattainable thing by literally staying hungry in order to prevent us from really going, like having hunger for the things that we deserve in life, like success and true happiness and, and careers. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just incredibly sad. The cycle that we've all put ourselves on. I know we've all been on diet since we were like 10 years old, which yeah. is so fucked. Yeah. I was, and, um, I was like, I think my first diet was like a 13. Yeah. Maybe I mean, even younger, I, but like, so I, I, I vividly remember being eight or nine years old and feeling fat. Yeah. yeah. I like, I went on diets, uh, weight watchers with my mom when I was like 10 or 11. Yeah. That's crazy. And like, and they discussed that in the podcast, you know, how people, some, do it as young as that age. And it's like, so the, the podcast is great. Highly recommended, highly recommended. But the thing that I think is dumb and I'm just, and I'm over right now, I'm taking a no diet approach to everything, even, even, and this is going to shock a lot of people when I say this, because I've been like gluten free, dairy free, vegan, like all these things. I am taking, um, a no diet approach to everything. Yeah. Meaning if I want to eat it, I'm going to fucking eat it. Yeah. And if I feel like eating it, I'm going to eat it. If I'm hungry, I'm going to eat something. And I swear to God, I have like lost four pounds ever since I've like stopped. Stop depriving yourself and then, and then. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I know when it comes to veganism, it's like, I, I like, and I, I know I talk openly with Dustin all the time, my my vegan friend chef. Yeah. Um, I I'm open with him too. I'll be like, I cheated today, <laughs> and he doesn't care. He's not judgmental. But right. I like eating vegan. I choose to eat that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's well, like every once in a while, right. uh, I'll eat what I want. If I want something, I'll eat it. But um, but I'm taking my approach to everything is just like do what the fuck I want. Yeah, do what the fuck I want. And I just kind of invite, and I love it and I'm having a great time. Yeah. And so I kind of just invite uh, everyone to just like, fuck all this diet bullshit, keto, this and that, and this and whatever, like eat what you want when you want. And I promise, like, I just feel like you're just going to feel better and see probably better results when you let go of all the bullshit. Yeah. And just let go of this idea that thin is means healthy or whatever, like fat is bad or any, I mean, any of the things like whatever you want for yourself, just take a hard look at where is this society talking and where is this like external forces and like what you've been conditioned to believe and what is it that you actually want and what you actually believe. And like, that's what what are you hungry for? What are you you really hungry for? And it doesn't have to be food. Yeah. But if it is food, eat something. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Like it just is, um, I, you and I both have been kind of having this awakening at the same time. And it makes me really, um, happy because I'm like so happy to have someone to talk to about like, Oh my God, why these are things that I've, you kind of should know, but it's like so crazy once you start examining your attitudes about food and your body and other people's bodies, like to realize like how much of it is so damaging and sick. 
I, I realized the other day, I was like, you know what, when I'm home and just around my house and like, I, I have periods of time where I'm not in public and not looking in a mirror. Like I feel great about my body. I exercise all the time. I eat like things that are healthy. I feel great about your body. Thank you. That are healthy for me. But it's like when I'm out in the world that I get ashamed and all of that stuff. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Cause that's all external factors. And it's me doing it to myself. Nobody is saying, Oh, you're disgusting. You should be in public. But like, it's like, Oh, okay. So this, if this is all external factors then I have the power to ignore it and just exactly, feel good just and off. fucking spend my time doing other shit. Yeah. I'm sure everybody has a friend, you know, where they're like, or, or where the friend will be like, uh, so I did this, this, this is this, this and this for the last three months. And I finally lost five pounds. Yeah. And you're like, I love you. And you look exactly the same to me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's because I love you. And that's not an insult. Yeah. That means like, I'm so sorry that you just tortured yourself for this long. Yeah. To feel like you needed to reach a number when no matter what, you look the same to me because I love you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like do. sometimes Zach will be like, you know, Zach is, um, you know, lifts weights and is a power lifter and stuff. And like, he was just like, I gain like this amount of like, I think he said something like 20 pounds or something. Yeah. And I was like, you look exactly the same to me. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. So let's all just stop torturing ourselves, eh? Stop torturing ourselves. All right. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure we will talk more about this. At later, but yeah. um, yes, okay, that is amazing. I'm gonna just go with you and say that that is also dumb. I'm gonna say that it for is. my dumb thing because it has been something that I've been thinking about so much lately. And if you ever did Weight Watchers, I highly recommend you listen to that Weight Watchers episode. Yeah, because it, as I told, I when I texted you, I was like, this is both incredibly like empowering and enlightening, and it. Like it feels satisfying and also triggering at the same time where I'm like, oh my God, I was this person. I, how many times have I cycled through and it's all fucking marketing, you know? Anyway, so I'm going to get off that rant because, um, okay, here's two things I love. I'm reading this book. It's called, it's a memoir. It's called Blow Your House Down. It's by an author named Gina Frangello. And it is just so beautifully written. I'm only like halfway through. So, but I recommend that if you're looking for a good meaty memoir. Okay. Um, that's about like feminism and kind of our views. And it's also about like her caring for a young child while her parents are, are dying and also her having an extramarital affair. And so it's very, it's very interesting um, and mm. well-written. And then also I love um, this last weekend, we had my friends and I had a baby shower via Zoom for our friend, uh, my good friend, Mike Cronin and his fiance, Lindsay. Oh, cool. And it was so fun. And guess who I got to play? Because I did a baby shower game and I got to play motherfucking Steve Harvey. You did? Yes. I got so to, this is the thing that you play at baby shower Zoom games. Well, I did. I did fam, like baby family feud where I so I like. Oh, <laughs> oh, sorry. I mean, I I played the role of Steve Harvey. I was like, it's just like a role playing baby shower. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that right. I organized a game of family feud for the baby That's shower so awesome. where it was like. 
few. What are the top five diaper brands? All right. Survey says I found this thing online that was like automated and it did all the bells and whistles. But then I got to pretend like I was Steve Harvey. Um, That is awesome. Did you wear a suit? I wore a suit jacket and (gasps) a paper mustache and it was real fun. And it was just good to see like it was all it was like mostly dude comics, but they totally all got into it. (laughs) They were such good sports. It was very fun. And I'm just really happy for them. They're going to have a baby in May. That's awesome. All right. That's it. We're quitting the podcast to start our own baby shower business. Yes. Let's do it. Okay. This is- Hire us. We've gone on too long now. Yeah. Um, Okay. Okay, you guys. Find us everywhere. You guys know where to find us. Give us a rate and review. Tell a friend. We'd love that. And we love you guys. We love you so much. You're the best. And don't forget to get out there and do something dumb for love. Dum, da, dum, 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 d